0: There's a line at the store. Mm. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. Mm. I'm indigenous. I hear the clerk break a snore. Mm. I'm indigenous. I could sleep on the floor. Mm. I'm indigenous. Yate.
1: And welcome to Determination, a podcast about sovereignty, self determination, indigenous brilliance, and the people who embody them. This is the final episode of Determination in this Spectrum Sovereignty series. So we already spoke to Marielle Triggs, who is the CEO of Muralnet. she helped us lay a foundation of what tribes can do with spectrum if they have the right to it. And then we talked to Anthony Royal about the Maori in New Zealand and their spectrum rights. Today, I'm very excited to talk to Danae Wilson, she's the manager of the Department of Technology for the Nez Perce Tribe in Northern Idaho. Danae is a leader in tribal broadband, both within the Nez Perce tribe and among Indigenous people across the country. She sits on the Public Safety Advisory Committee for the National Congress of American Indians, and she serves on the Federal Communications Commission's Intergovernmental Advisory Committee. Beyond all of this, Danae is a lovely, brilliant person and a good community member to have. I learned a lot from Danae just in this short conversation. And I would say specifically what I learned was how to apply compassion and understanding to the people who were making policies in the past. What I mean by that is that when we're talking about Indian politics and everything that we've talked about thus far with treaties and the way that policies are that don't benefit Indigenous people, As an indigenous person, it's really, really easy to just go straight to anger and frustration and resentment for the way that things are because of how much has been taken from us and because of the way that we have had to deal with the way that American history and settler colonialism has rolled out. What Denae does is she inserts compassion and understanding to the people who didn't know any better, and she chooses to move forward in a better way. And so I definitely look up to Denae. I'm very thankful for the words that Denae had to share with me and now that I get to share with you and specifically how she brings compassion and understanding into some really difficult topics. And I think for me, that helps me do this work. It helps me to not burn out and it helps me to have sustainability um, in this line of advocacy for indigenous peoples, because to carry anger is too heavy and that's something that I'm learning more and more all the time and Danae chooses not to carry anger but to carry compassion and understanding but you'll see that for yourself without further ado here is Danae Wilson okay
0: so uh,
2: my name is Danae Wilson I'm an enrolled member of the Nez Perce Tribe, and I live and work on the Nez Perce Reservation. Uh, my employer is the Nez Perce Tribe, and we're located in North Central Idaho. So for those of you that uh, need a little bit of perspective about where we're at, we're four hours north of Boise, Idaho, and three hours south of Spokane, Washington, and uh, two and a half hours south of, of Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So that sort of gives you a, a ge- geographical location of where Nespers is. We are hunters fishers, um, and we uh, still very much live a subsistence life. Uh, so I am a uh, cultural gatherer, uh, gather our traditional foods and our, um, my son is a subsistence hunter and a subsistence fisher. We very much still live uh, that subsistence lifestyle. Uh, so in North Central Idaho, we've been very blessed to be people of the salmon. We're, we're water people and we have a ton of uh, natural resources
1: uh, that help sustain
2: our, our traditional lifestyle.
1: I was going to ask before you talked about fishing, what kind of bodies of water are there? Where do you fish?
2: So we fish the uh, uh, Clearwater River. We fish the Columbia River uh, all the way out to the Pacific Ocean. So uh, we're one of the Columbia River tribes, the most inland Columbia River tribes. And then we have all the tributaries off of the Columbia River here, uh, the Snake River. So that's really where we're at. And and we fish all those bodies of, of water.
1: That's cool. I want to spend more time up there. I went up to Idaho one time for a wedding um, that was uh, outside of, or it was at Schweitzer Mountain. Mm-hmm. And um, that whole country was just so beautiful. I really want to come. What kind of hunting is up there?
2: We do um, uh, white-tailed deer, uh, elk, moose. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we also have uh, mill deer, but those are like, uh, if we're starving. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first thing we talk <laughs> yeah
1: <laughs> you're pretty gamey <laughs> oh that's funny um, I was oh go ahead, oh, go ahead. that's okay go ahead. well I was just reading an article as a side note about the wolf issue up there too and that is so fascinating for anybody who's not familiar I think there was an article I want to say it was in the the Atlantic um but that's such an interesting issue too yeah, Nespris
2: took a real uh, proactive approach to wolf recovery um, simply because we see things that uh, environmentalists may not think of, right? You have a ripple effect every time you take a, a large predator out of an, an ecosystem, everybody has a place and a purpose. That's our religion teaches us that. You have a place and a purpose everywhere you're at. And um, so you have to identify what your place and purpose is. And wolves definitely have a place and a purpose in the ecosystem here because um, we have uh, blue gnats. They're itty bitty tiny um, bugs that um, little flies that cause deer essentially to drown themselves. It, the disease that it gives them uh, makes them believe they're thirsty. So they continue to drink all this water and flood their lungs. So you'll see deer dying. Um, and essentially they're dying from drowning and they're doing it to themselves because the gnats are, um, they, they come in waves. And so we we originally seen it in our elk population. We seen it in our deer population this last year. So we, we, we see a lot of, um, Uh, issues where normally a large predator would have taken those uh, dead and dying or those sick out Mm -hmm. and consumed them. And and instead, what has happened is they clog our waterways, they're in our yards, they're along our highways. Mm -hmm. So now you're seeing and smelling all these carcasses that um, could have been handled naturally in its own environment. And so, um, well, I understand because my dad was a cattle rancher. Um, I understand the threat to uh, domestic livestock, um, but the bigger threat, I think, is when we think we're fixing something for an industry, we um, indirectly cause a ripple effect in, in the natural cycle of things. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we see it with our forest fires as well, but, um, but definitely uh, everything has a place and a purpose.
1: <laughs> yeah, I love that. And I like... I like getting the answers to these sorts of questions because it shows, um, how we have these lines running through all of our communities, no matter where we are. Like Mm -hmm. I had, I did one interview last year with, um, Elizabeth Azuz from the Yurok tribe. She's on their fire management council Mm -hmm. and they've been bringing back the practice of um, cultural burns. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what she was talking about was just this balance and, and how we need to, um, you know, let nature do its thing and then also not interfere, but also like in the ways that we can help. Like she talks about, um they burn to keep their forests clear of all of that debris and everything that you're talking about. It's like almost like waste management sort of thing. And then that's, that allows the food to thrive. That allows the medicines to thrive because they go back and plant those things in. And then the charcoal from the fire also cleans the water and acts as a water filter as it's going back out to the ocean and and the water's cleaner. So um, yeah, all the same principles. Yeah. Yeah. We
2: definitely, uh, I, I come from a environmental background. I, Originally was doing osprey studies, uh, um, otter studies, white-tailed deer studies. Uh, So definitely that was my um, formulative foundation. Uh, But what comes natural to me is technology. And so when you add in technology to those natural practices, uh, sometimes it is uh, a significant benefit, right? Because from our burn, uh, we get uh, natural foods that you don't normally get. They only come out of the charring. Right. And yep. so, uh, we have a, a traditional food called hippo and, um, and it only grows out of the char. And if you don't have a char, you don't, you don't get it, but, but that mushroom is literally the size of a steak. Oh, wow. and so, um, they're, they only come, um, because of the burn. So, so, um, definitely, uh, you know, and we introduce a lot of species that we think are, are extremely helpful. Like, um, we had people introduce uh, purple thistle in our areas because the, it makes good honey, right? So you had, so, so that's an introduction of a plant that you think is going to be helpful um, for a business and it has ripple effects because then those big um, thistles grow and they have to be burned off, right? There's mm-hmm. just no way to control them. And when you don't control them, they spread. Yeah. So uh, so the Nespish tribe does like a biocontrol where we introduce bugs that eat those plants and help combat uh, all of these invasive or these uh, introduced uh, plants and species to to an area that they didn't traditionally grow to help uh, naturally sustain the balance. And mm-hmm. so uh, they are bugs that that we, we actually have a, a bug breeding facility. I know it <laughs> sounds crazy, but we have <laughs> the biocontrol center, and um and we foster the growth of these bugs, so that we can release them and have a natural. Um, so that's a just a way of technology, helping solve a problem
1: that humans created. You guys have a bug brothel? Awesome. Wow, tribal governments really are doing great things. Um, yeah. I love all of that. And it's interesting to like, technology what you're saying like it kind of runs through all of that the the technologies that we have used as indigenous peoples that maybe people don't think falls under the um like white your eurocentric uh definition of technology but things that we've done and used to make our lives better and make our lives easier in the past i think fall under those um so but that brings us to our next question um so i'm curious for your background, um, I'm assuming you grew up on the reservation on Nez Perce. Did. And did. so what does your, um, what does your timeline look like from, you know, did you stay on the res for school? Did you leave and then come back? And, you know, how did you come to this work that you're in now?
2: So, uh, as I mentioned, uh, my dad was a rancher and my mom's family, uh, raised horses, Appaloosa horses. And so we, um, I grew up from an egg background, right. And, um, So you see things, uh, I always say um, uh, country girls, are farm girls, they work hard, right? You Mm. grow up uh, kids that are accustomed to having to do that hard work, you're accustomed to working hard, right? And it it just uh, crosses um, your boundaries to everything else you do. So excelled uh, academically in school and um, uh, right the day after I graduated high school, I had a scholarship for a summer program, went right to school. Uh, left and drove to Colorado to go to uh, University of Colorado in Boulder. Oh, cool. nice. And, um, and so had a my dad ranched in Wyoming, and I had a week to spend with my dad on the ranch to help him harvest. And then I went right to right to school. So um, when you're accustomed to working long, hard days, you work long, hard days in your life for the rest of your life. So um, I, I went to school, I uh, came back and uh, went to um, Idaho State University in Southern Idaho. And then I, I came back to the tribe and worked for the tribe. I took employment opportunities and uh, was a contractor and went to Albuquerque as a young adult and did contract work and uh, and then worked for federal government, went from contract work to federal government and did work for federal government. And um, all in the technology field, it's uh, what makes sense in my brain. Yeah. Uh, so um, So I... The tribe was uh, recruiting for their technology director and uh, in 2000, and I thought, it's time for me to go home. It's time for me. I have a son, and at the time, um, he was getting to an age where he needed to learn rightful passage things for young boys, mm-hmm. and uh, so it was time to bring him home. He's 31 now, and I have a 10-year-old granddaughter. So Wow. Uh, yeah, so we came home in 2000 and, uh, and we just picked right up. Uh, the tribe at the time was using um, what's considered bundle T1 services and uh, spending an enormous amount of money on disconnected networks right so all these real small networks, we have three primary communities on the Nez Perce reservation. Our headquarters is in Lapway, Idaho. Our secondary location is in Kamii, Idaho, and our sort of middle of the reservation on the river is Orfino, Idaho. And in each of those locations, we have tribal operations. But beyond that, we have 13 remote facilities. We uh, do conservation in Oregon, in Washington, in Southern Idaho. So our tribal network is expansive. Mm-hmm. And, and we were paying outrageous amounts of money. So my very first thing was... Uh, let's get away from these bundled services and, and local loops and let's start uh, deploying our own infrastructure and taking control. And so that's really where we started.
1: So the people that you're serving are far and wide. How big is the reservation land base that is recognized by the federal government? And, um, how, and then how far off of that are you trying to service?
2: So we service uh, on reservation, uh, but we also service um, where a checkerboard reservation, meaning uh, the um, the checkerboard reservation is uh, various land. ownership within the reservation boundaries. That's considered a checkboard. You can have federal land, uh, tribal government land that the tribe owns, individual tribal members. I own my land. Uh, You have land that's in trust with the Bureau of Indian Affairs, both tribal land and individual land. Uh, And then you have non-tribal city um, and you'll have like historical park service. Of course that's federal land. So then you have all these different Land ownership within the reservation boundary, and so um, uh, the Nespers tribe uh, is has more than um, 3,500 enrolled citizens, and um, our reservation spans about 770,000 acres, uh, and the um, uh, current reservation boundaries are um, what what uh, we operate within, in terms of, um, oversight, but we, what we also have is considered, uh, a land mm-hmm. and they are, um, our reservation was shrunk three times. And so our, uh, reservation originally was, um, much larger and encompassed, uh, Idaho, Washington, and, and parts of Oregon. And so, um, we originally, uh, um, in 1855, we had uh, 7.5 million acres um, for the tribe's exclusive reservation. Wow. And, um, and then uh, in 1863, the reservation was reduced to what we have now, which is 750,000 acres. Um, but that was because gold was discovered. And so, um, so you can see how we had a massive area that we were managing. Uh, that was shrunk down in the process of of different treaties. So um, we never uh, forfeited the original treaties. Um, So that 7.5 million acres, uh, it's considered ceded territory. We ceded that to the government, but we didn't um, relinquish any of our uh, rights to that land. So we can hunt and fish. We can cross uh, um, boundaries. Uh, to get to waterways, so that transport piece was never forfeited, so, so Nesper's Tribe has been very proactive in maintaining its uh, sovereignty and its rights to resources. Uh, so so um, we moved historically with our food, so our calendar of the year isn't what you uh, think of as months um, uh, we we use our foods as this is the period of time that we harvest and we harvest this these things in this area and then we move traditionally with our foods and we harvest it along that migration path, and um, so so that was uh, our traditional culture and we still maintain um, all of those rights and so Nespers, uh has offices in Oregon we have offices in Washington and again um along our salmon path which takes us uh to Riggins, Idaho which is southern Idaho for well almost southern Idaho before Boise and um so our fishing rights go there but we also buffalo hunt we go into Wyoming and and have a buffalo hunt there too so it's very cool <laughs> large
1: it's it's so interesting the the concept of ceded land like i largely recognize my privilege as a Navajo person that we have, you know, most of the land that we have inhabited for thousands of years. And um, for tribes that especially I spent last year in Tulsa and just like, you know, understanding and learning those stories of the people who are there and why they're there. And um, the people who don't have land or don't have much land, it's, um, it's, all of, you know, every different tribe has a different story and even the people in those tribes have different stories of, and, and we remember, I think that's the thing that a lot of Anglo America doesn't understand is that it's like, oh, well that happened a long time ago and nobody really remembers. And it's like, no, we know this land we remember and we have these stories. Um, and the concept of seeded land is so interesting too, because it's essentially it's almost like a stalemate of sovereignty of just kind of it. Cause I hear what I'm hearing you say is like, essentially the Nez Perce said, Hey, we're not going to fight you over this, but just to let you know, we still recognize this as our land. And that's the right. federal government is like, well, th- we also recognize this as our land. And so it's like, okay, well, whatever. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's interesting. And it sounds like a delicate balance in and of itself for the Nez Perce to, um, you know, do what they've always done, but also I'm sure just like everywhere else in America, there's tons of people who don't agree with that tribal mindset of that being tribal land. And so, you know, the get off my property or not letting you go to the usual and accustomed places that you've always hunted or always fished or whatever. And, and that can, uh, that's, it's just so heartbreaking. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about, um, the government Uh, The Nez Perce government, speaking of sovereignty, and um, I've seen lots of different government tribal governments organize in lots of different ways. So for your government, um, where does the broadband live in your government, Um, whether it's like, uh, you know, some people do it as just the IT department, some people do it in their public utility sector, other people have a completely different setup. So um, what does that tribal um, broadband uh, entity? Where is that in your government?
2: Sure. So typically there are uh, three types of uh, broadband entities and tribal governments, the uh, enterprise, a for-profit business or uh, LLC. Uh, so so that's, t- that's most typical, What you'll see, you'll see uh, originally in the telecommunications days before broadband, you've seen tribes establish their own uh, telecom company and they're governed by by a utility board and or an advisory board separate from the uh, tribal council, uh, but still under the tribal umbrella. So I do a PowerPoint for people who are uh, introduction to tribal governments in general. And so you have the overarching of the tribe itself, right? And then you have all the uh, prongs of the umbrella underneath that still fall under that sovereignty. So you can have private businesses, LLCs uh, that the tribe is ultimately um, uh, governs, and then uh, your healthcare, your judicial, your education, and um, and then the tribal government operations. Which typically education falls under. So, um, for Nespers, we set our broadband uh, office up. The um, uh, more rare uh, uh, way to set up a broadband office is as a utility. We set ours up as a utility because we were prior to um, getting into broadband, we were doing a lot of community connect and and uh, uh, USDA um, applications uh, through their ARDOF and their um, uh, ARBG to go from community to community to get connections. So we started very small and we started just as a utility. Was necessary for tribal government operations, right? And then the ancillary, the unused service was sold to um, other government agencies, counties, uh, federal offices, or individual private members uh, and our citizens, because we serve both non- and non-native and native, uh, but then also uh, private business. So, um, so from community community, we had ancillary service that um, selling would not impact. service to the tribal government, and that's really how we started. So we continue to build and function as a utility. And then the third way tribes get into uh, broadband today is through cooperatives, right? So they can can either enter into an agreement where they are uh, having somebody else um, operate and and perform the services, or they can do a consortium where it's a group of tribes working together for broadband to all tribes equally that are part of the consortium. Uh, and the other way is where they pay an established company, uh, either a telecommunications company or a cellular company to provide the service to their uh, members. So there's really, those are really the three types of ways broadband is done on tribal reservations and um, how tribes sort of see deployment on their reservation. And, uh, and none of them are wrong. It all depends on the tribe and what fits their needs. Not one is any better than the other. They all come with their own strings, right? Mm-hmm. So um, as a utility, uh, one of the things that we do is um, we, we try to be very inclusive. Uh, we we uh, participate in economic development, uh, both by counties, of the tribe's economic development, and and we, we try to make sure that the region is covered. So what are the upcoming uh, needs? We uh, work with those economic devel- development uh, entities. Um, county offices have them, uh, tribes definitely have them. And what is their future growth in the three year, five year time period? And what are they trying to do to boost the economy of a region so that we're ready to meet those demands at the time frames that they're actually ready to to start services or to uh, bring industry in. So so we really work uh, diligently on that. Um, As an offset of that, you have to develop local talent. So we work very hard with the uh, community colleges, universities, career days for high school juniors and seniors, intern programs, uh, adult education. We're working very hard to ensure that workforce development is ready to meet the industry demands in three to five years. So what do we need in three to five years? um, And how are we meeting their their growth needs uh, with infrastructure? But then beyond the infrastructure deployment, we have to have trained people And so what is it going to take to get somebody trained to perform those functions or to support those functions? Right. Mm -hmm. So, so we really see it a little bit differently than, than most other uh, entities. Uh, it's what's made us sustainable. We originally launched in 2004 and, um, and we've been doing some sort of broadband, uh, or infrastructure build out since 2004 that services more than just the tribal government.
1: Okay. So, Um, I just want to make sure that I understand, so you have a tribal utility and that's where most of your broadband is happening, but then do you also have, um, I'm thinking like, I don't know if you've talked to um, Gila river where they, they service their tribe tribal members through their utility, but then they also have an enterprise where they're servicing off reservation and making money to subsidize that tribal utility is it a similar setup.
2: Well, so what we do is, um, we started out as a tribal program, so, um, here it's a little bit backwards. I'm the manager over the department of technology and, um, where typically that would be a director or a CIO, right. In, in any outside organization, but in the tribal organization, you're a manager, I report to the executive director, and then we report to our executive council, which is our, our NISPR's tribal executive committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so, uh, Underneath me is telecommunications, which we only do telecommunications for tribal government. We don't, we're not an ETC or a voice carrier mm-hmm. providing any voice service, not mobility or any other type of uh, voice service. Um, we do allow um, and foster uh, voice um, over internet. So any VoIP service that individuals want to use, uh, it's available to them. Uh, The um, service to the tribal government is information systems, and they provide all of the technical support, the uh, um, software support, database support, all of that uh, internal uh, technical needs for the tribal government to operate that's what information system does we have our uh, kiye radio station which falls under us and, and that was just by a fluke because um, when it first came out it was under a tribal priority window and it had a uh, spectrum on it right mm-hmm. uh, it had um, how broadcast spectrum and um, so they saw the word spectrum and they're like oh this belongs to it and they sent it to you <laughs> so that's how how it ended up here. But then we have our uh, broadband office, which is called um, Nespers Network Systems, and they provide um, services to uh, tribal government. They provide services to uh, individual business owners. So everybody that is getting um, commercial service or uh, governmental service is getting service from Nespers Network Systems. And, uh, and they um, uh, so they operate there and they're funded two ways they get 50% of their budget from what's called indirect travel indirect and and then the other is off of their revenue and uh, their revenues also pay for um, the lion's share of radio station operations radio station gets uh, CPB as well corporation for public broadcast funding but it's small compared to what um, Nespers network system puts in from broadband revenue so that's. Uh, sort of how we're set up and all the broadband revenue goes back into the network, um, building the, the uh, network service up.
1: Got it. Okay. Thanks for that. That makes sense. Um, so getting to spectrum, since you mentioned spectrum, yeah. this is sort of the, the meat and potatoes of what I want to talk about in this series. Um, did the tribe hold a lot of spectrum licenses before the 2.5 gigahertz tribal priority window, or was that, I, for some tribes, I know that was the first time they'd been able to access spectrum, but it sounds like maybe you guys had some spectrum before.
2: We did. We we were uh, initially we were funded under the ARA um, uh, BTOP program, uh, Broadband Technologies Opportunities Program BTOP, uh, and um, and so we set up tower infrastructure, and initially we started with twelve towers under that particular grant. And uh, so we had licensed microwave to do fixed broadband under licensed microwave. We were running, and we still are running both licensed and unlicensed. And in radio station, of course, we were licensed for that spectrum. Prior to that, uh, Nespers tribe had uh, land mobile radios, and we own spectrum for radio communications, for law enforcement, and for our conservation enforcement for Bureau of Indian Affairs. So so we had a um, land mobile uh, Spectrum that NESPERS had already had licensed. So Spectrum wasn't new to us. We had been using Spectrum for multiple different purposes, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when we brought on transportation and, and our um, Head Start programs, started using uh, more and more busing services. There's rules and regulations for radio communications on buses and safety. Mm-hmm. So we um, expanded our land mobile licenses to include and to service uh, the need for public transportation or for educational transportation. Mm-hmm. So uh, so we had already been doing um, spectrum on the land mobile piece already and ha- that has been in place since the 50s. I mean we have been doing oh, wow. spectrum management for a very long time, but it was land mobile. so it's a different layer in the overall spectrum, right? Yeah and then and then uh, when we received our grant and we're doing fixed uh, wireless, we were using both licensed and unlicensed to deliver that service across the reservation. Today we have 22 towers and we have hundreds of miles of fiber uh, put into place. And so initially when we first started doing fiber, we were doing fiber just in uh, between tribal facilities. So we had these small fiber rings, uh, some of which still are not connected to a middle mile connection, but they connect all tribal operations. Uh, So even if we can get a microwave backhaul connection uh, to that fiber uh, ring, then at least we have uh, some way to transport that traffic um, out of that particular area so. um, So Nespers has been doing spectrum for a long time when the 2.5 became available, it gave us the ability to service areas that were restricted or uh, didn't have line of sight because traditional um, spectrum fixed wireless. Uh, relies on line of sight, and mm-hmm. so if you didn't have line of sight, or you were too far from the tower beyond seven miles or so, mm-hmm. um, you you couldn't get good service. And um, and here, of course, we have hills, we have trees, we have water, we have rock bluffs. All of that creates reflection, and so it interrupts your signal. 2.5 has the ability to see through those and to service around them, mm-hmm. and so um, 2.5 was just a layer we added. Uh, that helped us get to areas that were more difficult to reach.
1: That's great. So uh, for the listeners, a lot of people might not be familiar, but 2- 2.5 gigahertz is what was given to tribes by the FCC um, in this tribal priority window. And it's they call it beachfront spectrum because of what you're just describing. It's so good at getting where it needs to go and can carry a signal through a lot of trees, over hills, and it can... Um, some other spectrum you have to put a tower, you know every so often, but this one can go a distance and it can get through a lot. And so that's great for the tribe and I'm really glad to hear you say that you guys have been in the spectrum game since the 50s because um, I mean, just like we know, every tribe is different and every tribe ha- is at a different stage of their telecommunications journey. Um, and for you guys, uh, that that key piece of knowing how to manage spectrum is definitely there. because um, that's one of the things that I in this work, especially when I was out in DC, um, I would get questions like if I would explain what I did to someone, usually like, maybe an older white person, they would be like, well, what are Indians going to do with spectrum? One guy actually asked me that at a meeting, (laughs) what are Indians going to do with spectrum? Or he, no, he didn't even say spectrum. He said, what are Indians going to do with the internet? And it was just kind of like this moment where I was like, oh my gosh, there's, there's such a knowledge gap here. Um, because I, and I think that that sometimes seeps into the minds of people in government who haven't worked with tribes and who don't know what tribes are capable of, what tribal administrators such as yourself are capable of. Um, because I, I think that was, ha, has been the notion of why tribes haven't been able to get their hands on spectrum. It was never even a thought, like take away the the na- uh, natural resource argument or treaty rights argument. It was never a thought to include tribal governments in the allocation of spectrum because it's like, well, what are Indians going to do with spectrum? And so I love everything that you're saying. It's like soothing to my soul just to know that you guys have been doing this since the '50s. Um, And so I guess I'm curious from your perspective, like what, if you've run up against that, or if you kind of have been protected from that mindset and what sort of um, just reaction you have to that notion of like, well, tribes don't have the capacity to manage spectrum. You know, what are they going to do with this? How, How are we going to help them do this? What do you, what do you think about it?
2: Yeah, I think it's twofold. Um, I sit on the um, FCC Native Nations Task Force. I happen to chair with Matthew Duchesne, uh this task force. I, I have been in, um, I think I'm in my second or third term on the FCC Intergovernmental Affairs uh, Committee and so Advisory Committee and um, on the IAC. Uh, literally when I started, of course, you're working with uh, cities, counties, law enforcement officials, right? So they have a very different perspective. I would have two laptops, one for all of my notes, all of the uh, things, key points that I absolutely needed to add to the discussion. And then I had a second one to look up terms, terminology, uh, what, what are they talking about? And so I think um, there's a real disconnect when you're talking to tribes. Uh, I sit on the, I, I chair the telecommunications and technology committee for affiliated tribes of northwest indians and sharon gowdy who is the uh, atni um treasurer she is from Yakima nation and she said um danae i think this is all really great information but i feel like i just saw an accident and i don't know where to go to get help like who, i'm turning around who do i talk to who do i tell who's responsible like what do we do with this information that you're giving us so i think um there's a real disconnect between uh, what tribes perceive and what agencies perceive uh, those that, that govern us. And so, um, or not govern us necessarily because our tribal governments govern us, but who are licensing Uh, these resources. So, um, so definitely on the tribal side, I try to explain everything as if it's a layer cake, right? So on the bottom of the cake is the Bluetooth is your remote control is the RC card that your kid plays with. That's like the bottom layer, right? And people don't really think about that bottom layer. It's so ingrained in what we do. They wouldn't know that that spectrum, right? They wouldn't know that that's using airwaves to communicate. Mm -hmm and it's extremely crowded. And then you think of your middle layer and that's your land mobile radio communications, your walkie talkies. And pe- tribes have been doing uh, land mobile for eons, right? For a very long time because they've had law enforcement agencies and they've worked with Bureau of Indian Affairs but they don't recognize that as spectrum. Land mobile radio isn't typically um, does an equal spectrum in most people's communications. But that is absolutely a communication spectrum and most tribes have had uh, some sort of spectrum license to operate their land mobile radios. And then um, you go up from there and I explain to tribes what layers of spectrum are on the cake and where we're at. And of course, 2.5 fits a very specific uh, layer in the cake and it can help tribes. Um, On the federal government side, uh, working with, or any government, any city, any county, any uh, um, agency uh, that that tribes are working with, I tried to explain that it's a uh, definition, how we communicate, how you're communicating it, and then how we translate it. And so uh, recently I worked uh, as a uh, consultant to a tech industry, and they had a survey done of indigenous communities, they actually only went to one community and they <laughs> surveyed less than a hundred people. But in that community, they were asking um, brand identification, and they were listing brands like Starbucks and Nike and you know major national brands. And they they were asking questions about what does that mean to your community, what does that mean to you, how do you identify with it? And I told them, I said that that question should be taken off immediately because they're not in our community. don't Mm -hmm. service us in our community yeah we may be uh able to get those when we drive 30 miles two hours whatever it may be Mm -hmm. when we go to town whatever your town is Mm -hmm. you can get those services but in our local area those are not services that are in our area but ultimately what came out of that survey is that uh, tribes were very literal and um and so i said that should be taken out of your survey and it shouldn't even be a quantifiable analysis right because Uh, Most tribes, English is not their first language. So of course they're taking the very literal translation of what you're saying, um, because that's how they understand it. Uh, And so that should also be taken out of the equation. So when tribes, when uh, agencies are, when entities are trying to work with tribes, they think we don't have the know-how, they think we don't have the understanding. Honestly, uh, the reality is not only do we have the understanding and the know how we just communicate it differently. Um, I'm a very straightforward person and I tell everybody nothing you're going to say is going to offend me, but there will be pushback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can say whatever you want to say, but I'm going to educate you.
1: <laughs> yep.
2: And so so um, I just think the way that we communicate terminology. In, in the IAC, cities and counties were talking about franchise agreements. Well, on tribal lands, those are typically co-location agreements. They are not, we don't um, think of the term franchise as a revenue share or as a lease of real property, right? Uh, so, so that terminology drops off. If, if an entity comes to you and talks about in your town doing a franchise agreement with you for putting uh, communication equipment on your buildings, that wouldn't translate to a revenue share or co-location because we don't use the term franchise. So um, understanding what the word means and what the intent is are two different things. And I think there's a huge gap. So that education piece is absolutely critical. And uh, when I was doing work as the tribal working group chair for FirstNet, National Congress of American Indians appointed to me as their representative to FirstNet and I was the chair of the tribal working group. I had to work with individuals who had never been uh, exposed to tribal governments Mm. and they didn't know, you don't know what you don't know. And they just didn't understand what is the best way to get tribes interested in emergency communications on their tribal lands. And I'm like, what do you mean the best way? They're absolutely interested in protecting their Uh, tribal people on their tribal lands. It's just the way we communicate um, what they're asking and what tribes understand. And so uh, breaking away some of those uh, terminology barriers, uh, because honestly, when I first got to FirstNet, it was hard for me because when they're talking about infrastructure, they're talking about emergency communication infrastructure, different than what we think of broadband, right? Right. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of their terminology meant something else to me because it's the same terminology in communications and telecommunications in broadband, uh, but they mean different things and they're meant for different purposes, but the, um, uh, terminology is the same. And so, uh, I just think crossing that barrier and giving an explanation of the intent, it helps resolve a
1: lot of those issues and on both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And, Um, I commend you for doing that work to be on those work groups and tasks, task forces can be so exhausting because you are being the middle person and having to speak these two different languages and translate and help people work through all of their um, biases and miscommunications and some, and then there are egos involved and that's, that makes it even harder. But what you're describing is, um, I don't know if it's, white supremacy in a nutshell or just a facet of it but there is a notion among a lot of European descendants who are like well we need to educate the natives and it's like well no maybe you need to educate yourself about what this culture is and how to speak and and how they speak and if you're trying if you're trying to work with that group of people educate yourself about what their understanding of whatever already is and so and it can be so hard to to do that with people who think that they already know and, you know, who think they already have the upper hand. So that's, I know that that's really difficult work and um, it's really, it's so, it's so necessary as well. I feel like that's a lot of what I've been doing. And even in this podcast, I guess that's what I'm trying to do in a way. I'm very much in the middle. Like I have a, a mom who's of European descent and then my dad is Dene. And, um, and I was raised in a border town and, you know, I, even my birthday is on the cusp, it's Gemini and cancer. Like there's just so much of that code switching that I do in my life as well. And, um, and I think that there's a, there are really important roles for it, even though it can be really exhausting work, but also what you're describing with the, these communication, these lines of communication getting crossed has literally been happening since the very beginning of. European contact when they came here and when we were trying to work out these treaties and this is so much of the work that I'm doing that I think is so fascinating where um, you know we're looking at these treaties and trying to figure out like, well, what did people mean? And what was the understanding? And we have these canons of construction in case law that say that because they were these treaties were written in English and English was not our first language, that means that um, we get the benefit of the doubt in these treaties. And we really haven't seen that be super effective, um, but that was one of the things in the McGirt decision a couple summers ago where they took that into consideration. Um, And then when it comes to spectrum, that is one of the things that I just think is so so relevant, because in our treaties, you know we have this land for use and occupation, and we're supposed to have it in perpetuity for our use and occupation, and now. You know what using and occupying land means is having broadband because we need that safety we need that communication we need um that economic development that broadband brings the education you know the list goes on and on and um so that is really the crux of what my argument is that i've been pushing for spectrum sovereignty for a couple of years now saying like no this is in the treaties and i just had a conversation with um anthony royal of, he's Maori and he's been working on this issue. They just signed a big memorandum of agreement uh, between the New Zealand government and the Maori that recognizes um, spectrum rights, but not not the big spectrum rights, you know, because what they say, their word, like their for use and occupation, their word is Tonga. And it's essentially things treasured and the Maori and a Maori court has found that things treasured include spectrum. Um, but the government still won't recognize that. And that's sort of the same boat that we're in of, um, okay, yeah, spectrum is a natural resource. We recognize that it's like naturally on the land, but it's not in the treaties. And it's not something that the, the Native nations own. So um, I guess I'm curious about what, what you think about all of that as well. Well,
2: I, I definitely think uh, culturally we uh, think of a natural resource protection um, environmentally on a whole, right? So um, we think about where the smoke is going. We think about how um, air is carrying not only our birds and our uh, life force, right, but that it also delivers um, uh, the rain and the water that we need. That's so crucial, right? So, so. Um, when we think about Nesper's culturally, when we think about our world, we're thinking about it holistically. What are we getting from the heavens above, and and what what are we doing to protect the land below? Right. So, mm-hmm. so we think of it uh, on a whole. But beyond that, uh, so um, my hope and many of my constituents at Nesper's hope that we'll have our the first tribally owned satellite launched. Mm-hmm. Right. So we yeah. think of even beyond because we talk about. Um, the uh, the stars and the sky that's in our, our uh, creation stories mm-hmm. and so um, so we see uh, that ownership uh, not necessarily ownership but that protection the requirement to preserve and protect that's right mm-hmm. uh, well beyond um, so that uh, indirectly ties to spectrum right so um, us at the time of treaties didn't even know about spectrum right. So they can't even say that that uh, they knew about it at the time of treaties, because that's not accurate. That's an inaccurate statement that at the time of treaties, not only did, did tribes not know about it, but neither did the US. And and at the time that uh, spectrum was identified and began to being used and licensed, um, the individuals at that period of time weren't thinking about impacts to tribal nations, right? They, They hadn't thought about treaties and and what it means to have reserved rights for for tribes. So so, uh, no fault at anybody's, um, wasn't intentional, I don't believe that any of this was intentional. The people who wrote the treaties, the tribes who signed those treaties, Spectrum wasn't even known about at that time. So let's just take that off the table because at both times, on both sides of the table, we didn't know about Spectrum. And at the time that Spectrum became licensed and the rules were written for Spectrum, the individuals writing it were scientists, right? Mm-hmm. And so I go back to my high school years and, and my very first job with the tribe and the uh, master's degree non-native person that was sitting across the interview table from me, he wrote on my interview paper that I wouldn't make eye contact and I kept my, my eyes down wow. and that While I knew the answers to the questions, um, I didn't automatically jump in to speak. Well, those are all cultural barriers, right? He didn't know that um, in our culture, a man of honor, a man sitting in a seat of of authority, you don't uh, raise your eyes to their level. Culturally, we don't do that. You give them the respect that they are uh, the authority, right? So, so, and then... um, waiting for him to finish his conversation or finish his and then that pause between him speaking and me speaking isn't that I'm I don't know or I was bashful or or insecure in my statement it was the politeness that he's finished and I can start and so um so all of those things, that was my very first introduction. So I took that paper home and I was pissed, right? You're yeah. angry, frustrated. And I went to talk to my mom and I was so mad about it. And she just very calmly sat me down at the table and said, um, they just don't know that you're being polite. And when you're communicating with them, meaning anybody not, not Native, anybody not nespers that um, you have to forgive them for their faults, right? So, so here we are today thinking about Spectrum and the people who wrote the licenses. We have to forgive them their faults. They didn't know to include tribes and reserve uh, rights for tribes. Um, that's not what they, their intent was to do. They were uh, brought in to write the rules that govern Spectrum and for the greater good, right? I get it. And initially, Spectrum was only used for military communications. Okay, so let's just start from that, right? Uh, So you can see that all along, there were missteps. Where we're at today, we can't go back and erase all of that. But we need to come to a solution today. And so today, moving forward, now that tribes are well aware of spectrum, the value of spectrum, and the use of spectrum, how they're able to use it to advance their stewardship over their lands, and definitely their self-governance our agencies need to recognize that we know what to do with that. And it needs to be written into from moving from this day forward, right? Mm -hmm. We can't erase the past, but we can correct it moving forward. That Mm -hmm. correction has yet to be made. And so, so that's where I see us. uh, And I don't know that it'll be done in my lifetime, but I certainly hope so.
1: Yeah, that's really, um, when I started this work, I was like, uh, maybe in like a couple years, I can do something big with this, and then now I'm like maybe by the time I, time I'm dead we'll have like <laughs> mass <spectrum laughs> rights. Um, and then I was watching that musical Hamilton the other day, and I was like, okay, maybe in like a hundred years or so, you know. But um, I would love to see it happen sooner rather than later. And um, I'm kind of trying to piece together what that might look like. So for you as someone who um, use the spectrum as a tribal administrator, you know, what, what would be your ask if you could change the policy, what would it look like to give more spectrum and in, in a way that you can use it.
2: I think uh, we have to, um, I, I'll go back to natural resources, um, because of course we're a natural resource tribe, Um we have subsistence and then we have commercial and subsistence always comes first subsistence fishing subsistence hunting. All subsistence comes before any commercial. And it happens even with forest service lands, like huckleberries is a naturally growing plant, grows on forest service lands. They sell commercial licenses to um, morale mushrooms, major big business, right? But they um, sell a commercial license, but subsistence comes in before Mm. uh, commercial. Spectrum is no different. It's a resource. We need to think of it as a resource. And so subsistence, what do we need to self-govern? And, and how much of that spectrum do we need to self-govern? Mm-hmm. And for every layer, not, not just what's currently available, but the upcoming auctions, the future auctions, uh, it absolutely needs to be written in. That if it's for subsistence, for governments to operate as a government and for their advancement, it's a natural resource management tool. We should be able to get in on that before commercial sale happens. And so before the auction, tribes should have an opportunity to come in and say, we can use this much spectrum. We're not hogs. We have never been uh, the gobblers of resources. Mm -hmm. Tribes historically have never done that. And so um, realistically, we're going to take what we need and and, um, leave room for everybody else at the table. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what we do, and, um, and I don't think we're there yet. I think we can get there. I also think on the back end, speaking of hogs, we have industry who gobble and then don't use.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, on the back end, there has to be a use or divulge, uh, and it needs to be written into every spectrum license that they sell, that if they don't use it in a specific time period, that it becomes unavailable to anybody else. Yeah. And, and we have not done that on any, the FCC has not done any of that. No agency has a user divulge uh, requirement. And um, uh, so while they'll say tribes don't know, they'll say, oh, industry knows. They don't know because they're not using it. They're just hogging it. They're gobbling it all up for some future mega million dollar price tag mm-hmm. that they might, or revenue that they might earn in the future. They don't mm-hmm. even know what they're gonna use it for and they may not even need it today. They might mm-hmm. not need it in the next 10 years. So there needs to be a use and divulge on the back end, but on the front end, there has to be a subsistence. There has to be a reserved right for, for first right of refusal. Here it is, it's over your tribal lands. Do you need it? Do you want it? Can you use it? And mm-hmm. if we say no, then then sell it.
1: Yeah. Well, I love that. And I'm so thankful for your advocacy for all of the work that you do and for the time that you took to share it with us. Um, I learned so much. This is exactly what I needed. I love having these conversations because every time I talk to someone new, I, my brain gets blown in a different way. And everything that you just said is so helpful to me and, and the way that I view this too. So thank you so much. And um, is there anything else that we didn't cover here that you would like to put out on the airwaves? I I, um, really think tribes need
2: to take a firsthand approach. I said this at the native public media. I say it all the time to um, individuals at tribal levels. We are our own experts and we cannot allow somebody else to speak for us. So if we don't step up to be on our state broadband boards, or on our uh, state, our regional economic development boards, if we're not in our checkerboard city, non-tribal city governments or in our, our uh, education boards, if we're not taking that step to help govern um, what's happening on our reservation, then, then we're missing, we're asking something of the federal government that we're not even doing locally for ourselves. We need to step into those roles and take ownership of our local areas be on the um, road districts, be on the, because all of that is rights of way. And you can't uh, go through a road district on a reservation without the road district voting on it. And if there's anti-tribal individuals on there, then your deployments can be stymied without you even taking that first step, right? So you really need to, um, if I can say anything to tribal members interested in any of this work, um, sovereignty work in general, you have to take that first step by serving uh, in your local communities, on your state boards, on your county boards, and definitely um, federal nationwide boards. Our voices have to be heard. And right now there's just a handful of us. Uh, You can count them on two hands, uh, those individuals who are um, taking this message forward and trying their best. Uh, So if anything, please get on a school board, get on a road district board, run for city council, make every effort to become the leader in your own community. So your voice and your, your sovereignty can be exercised overall.
1: <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much, Danae. I really appreciate it. I can have for your time. Thank you. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Determination, and for that matter, this series on Spectrum Sovereignty. I hope you now at least have a little bit of an understanding of Spectrum Sovereignty, what it is, and why it's important for Native Nations. So let's do a really quick review. Spectrum is necessary for any wireless connection, whether that be your TV remote control, or the telecommunications networks that we can set up as Native Nations or that telecom company sets up. Spectrum is absolutely necessary for those wireless connections, mostly for your cell phone. And that's really important because it makes it really valuable. It's valuable to make our lives better, all the things that a wireless connection can bring you, health, education, access to justice, policing. Um, And it's really valuable in a monetary sense. The Federal Communications Commission of the United States government sells Spectrum licenses to the highest bidder, and since they started doing this, they've made $230 billion doing it. So, Spectrum is really valuable in a lot of different ways. And because it's a natural resource, tribes have rights to it, or rather, their rights to it should be recognized by the United States government, which currently, they're not recognized. If they were, that would mean that tribes could set up their own networks. They could use their self-determination and their sovereignty to do whatever they wanted to with that spectrum. They could sell it themselves. And instead of that money going into U.S. Treasury, that money would go into their tribal treasuries and they could decide what to do with that money. Or they could set up their own networks, which is something we've seen a lot of tribes do. And as you can see, the argument of you know, tribes aren't sophisticated enough or don't have the capacity to manage their own spectrum or make their own networks is not true at all. We have brilliant tribal leaders like Danae Wilson and like Anthony, uh, sorry, Anthony Royal, who is Maori, who are doing incredible things with spectrum and with telecommunications on their lands. So that argument doesn't hold any water at all. So then where does that leave us? And that's a really tricky question. Because the reason that I made this entire podcast was to bring you all up to speed on everything that's going around in my brain for the last couple of years. And now that you have an understanding of where we are, we're all kind of in this together to figure out where we're going. And the truth is that it can go lots of different ways. Uh, there could be legislation that's passed that recognizes tribal spectrum rights. There actually was a bill proposed that Deb Holland and Elizabeth Warren introduced, but it didn't go anywhere. If you want to look it up, it's called the Digital Reservations Act. And what that does is it actually does everything that I'm talking about, and it recognizes tribal sovereignty over spectrum. Again, that bill just sat there and it's not passed, but it does exist, which is pretty cool. And again, that's called the Digital Reservations Act. Um, This could be a court case if a tribe brought this to court, though under this Supreme Court, which is probably where it would end up, I'm not sure how many Indian law experts we have, and I'm not sure that that would go in our favor. So that might not happen and might not be a good solution for right now. Another thing that could happen is something similar to what the Maori are doing, where they've made essentially an executive memorandum of agreement or memorandum of understanding. I still don't know which one it is, but I probably should. Um, where you make an agreement to say we're not giving up any rights, we still hold firm in the sense that we know that we should have a right to this natural resource. But let's let's work out a deal and let's talk about how we should manage resources. The thing about native people and native nations is that we've been really good at managing resources for a really really long time on this land. And so what I hope will happen. If nothing else, I hope that the FCC will bring in more indigenous people to really help them manage this important, valuable resource. And then eventually, I hope that that will breed an understanding of really why it's so important that Native nations get their hands on more spectrum, which is a natural resource on their lands that they should have a right to. Thank you all so much for listening. My name is Dara Blackwater. Our intro music today was by Aqualoo Birthlesson. It's called Move, I'm Indigenous. I hope it's stuck in your heads forever and that you love it as it is mine. And real quick, before I go, I should say that this podcast was made possible by a grant through the Shuttleworth Foundation. So a big ajeje to all of our guests and to the Shuttleworth Foundation for making this possible. Ajeje again for listening. Until next time, hope on it.
0: There's a line at the store. Man. I'm indigenous. Oh, creator, it's a bore. Man i indigenous, I hear the clerk break a snore mm. I'm indigenous, I could sleep on the floor mm. I'm indigenous, I hear your whispers behind my back Looking at me like I'm a snack. Mm. I'm indigenous, I won't steal your stuff, stay away Stealing continents, that your way mm. I'm indigenous, the police on native lands mm. I'm indigenous, natives go take a stand mm. Indigenous, make a fist, raise your hand I am indigenous Like a fire, make demands man aye yo, We are villainous in the eyes of the malicious We create dissonance in the colonial instruments My people had meteorite spears You better go tell your peers We manifest your tears because we're the true pioneers Pipelines and gold mines, your car bites and deadlines Send them on the boat from the coastlines Pack some water in a backpack Put a mask on and ransack Gather your people like a wolf pack Fight for that lamb back there's a line at the store. Mm. I'm a ditchin' Oh, creator, it's a bore. Mm. I'm a ditchin' I hear the clerk break a snore. Mm. I'm a ditchin' I could sleep on the floor. Mm. I'm a ditchin' us. Ay, ay, yo, ay, 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 ay,